views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good morning, everybody. Uh, at least it's morning, West Coast, United States, and I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in, and uh, glad to uh, have you for this program. Uh, we have a most interesting show with a guest who has been on with us before, Dr. Ian Crawford from the U.K. More about that in just a minute. First, of course, congratulations go out to IM1 and the company for their successful landing on the moon uh, late yesterday afternoon, again, West Coast time. Um, and um, good for you, and we hope to continue following it, and uh, I'd love to get a show going with intuitive machines, and we'll probably wait a little while for some of the busyness and excitement to die down, and, and then we'll see if we can't bring them on the show. But uh, congratulations to them, and uh, very happy that you're – Lunar landing was successful. Uh, our Sunday program is uh, Celestis, and that's the company that didn't make it to the moon. Uh, but Charlie Schaefer is back with us on Sunday. Uh, Bob Zimmerman is back with us on Tuesday. Um, our favorite caller, well, he's probably not our favorite, but our most prevalent caller, Marshall Martin, is doing a special show with us on the 3rd of March. And Zubrin is with us on the 5th of March for his new book about going to Mars. Uh, all of this will be updated on our newsletters this weekend. I just wanted to give you a glimpse of the, of the program. And uh, so um, for today, uh, Dr. Ian Crawford is back with us, and our phone number is 866-687-7223. And our email address is drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Remember, you can get our email newsletter that goes out about 6 a.m. West Coast time every Monday morning. Uh, if you want to get it, I need your – well, that was quick. Uh, Ian is in the U.K. Uh, I'll go ahead and do this introduction, and then I'll call him right back. I guess we somehow dropped the call. Uh, I hope that's not going to be a standard for calling England today. Uh, if you want the newsletter, uh, send me your email address. Everything we do is archived. Uh, we have a store. And don't forget, we're listener-supported radio, and we're a nonprofit, 501c3. We, uh, uh, your donations are tax-deductible if you pay federal taxes. Uh, the information is up on our PayPal button in the upper right corner. Remember, if you are using Zelle, it requires that you use David at OneGiantLeapFoundation.org as the email address. And um, if you're also making a checkout, 
make it payable to one giant LEAP Foundation. It mails to uh, Las Vegas, and that address is on that PayPal button. Quick, I, I just want to thank our sponsors, Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox Corp., Dr. Ben Arroyo, the Space Foundation, and John Jossie with his terrific blog, Space Progress. Now, uh, everybody stand by. I'm going to see if I can uh, – what is Ian saying? Uh, I've lost the sound. Well, Ian, you've lost the phone line. Uh, so um, everybody uh, stand by. This is going to take me a minute or two to try to, to reconnect to him. So um, you're going to – you're you're going to probably hear. Well, Ian's going crazy with. Uh, well, I think you will need to call again. So just sit tight. You may hear some dead air. Okay, but just uh, sit tight for a minute. I'll be right back. Uh, listeners, Ian is back with us, and let's hope we uh, don't have any more phone glitches. We have a good solid line with good audio. Ian, welcome back to the Space Show. How are you today? Oh, hi, David. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. Yes, good, good morning, everybody. Um, so, uh, listeners, Ian's uh, paper uh, is, uh, is not available. It's behind a paywall with Nature, uh, but his abstract has been posted on the blog, and the title of his paper, it's six pages long, is The Apparent Absence of Extraterrestrial Technological Civilizations Down to the Zoo Hypothesis or Nothing. And he starts out addressing the Fermi paradox. So, uh, Ian, um, start us out how you think we should start out with your paper. And uh, maybe some of us don't know very much about the Fermi paradox, although I think I'd find that hard to believe. But maybe we don't know too much about the zoo hypothesis. So maybe some definitions might be in order to. I, yes, happy to do that. Yes, I, I apologize for the length of the title. There is a, re- a reason for that. Our, our original proposed title was just the zoo hypothesis or nothing, and that seemed short and sweet. But then the <laughs> editor said we weren't allowed to uh, we weren't allowed to have such a question. So anyway, as a, as a, as a title, so yeah, we ended up with is the apparent absence of extraterrestrial technological civilizations down to the zoo hypothesis or nothing. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, there's several things, I think. The, the Fermi paradox is this apparent um, perceived paradox between an expectation that life should be common in the universe, especially given that there are so many stars and now we know there are so many planets and planets are really common. We'd expect life to be common and therefore some, some fraction of this life should evolve to be intelligent and technological life, so we'd expect that to be common. And yet we see no evidence for it. So this alleged, uh, this apparent discrepancy, this apparent paradox between the expectation that intelligent life should be common and the fact we haven't seen any evidence for it um, has become known as the Fermi paradox after the question that Enrico Fermi asked in 1950, um, basically asking that if life was common and, and where, is, where is everybody, and then it's still unresolved. But of course, it's only a paradox if you expect intelligent life to be common because then it's a paradox, we don't see it. Of course, if intelligent life is not common, then there is no paradox. Um, Fermi's question would then just be a question, and the answer would be straightforward. We don't see any evidence for intelligent civilizations because there there aren't any, because they're very rare. 
So um, this, this, is, this, is a, this is a question, and this question has interested me for a long time. Um, and I, I will talk about this later, I'm sure, but I, I broadly think that if technological civilizations were really common in the universe, then we would expect to have seen evidence for them. Uh, and if you, one could argue that we probably wouldn't be here now because they could have taken over the Earth billions of years ago. Let, let me stop you for a minute. Can I do that? Yes, yeah, So, sure. so the yeah. idea that um, if there was life in the u- universe, the expectation would be that it's common. So that expectation is based on the fact that we assume we are technically capable of detecting them. But but what if they're common, but we just don't have the means to detect them? Is, is that part of of your analysis? Well, clearly, if, if we if we can't detect life in the universe, or we haven't looked hard enough, then then then. The answer to the question is, is that exactly we haven't life could be common in the universe we just haven't looked hard enough but but I think it's important to note that the Fermi paradox really relates only to technologically advanced life I mean it's clearly true that the universe might be full of microorganisms for for all we know and we really don't have the capability yet of detecting those although our capabilities do so are increasing all the time with, uh, with large space telescopes like JWST. But certainly at the moment, simple non-technological life might be common in the universe. For we know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know. Um, but the Fermi paradox really only relates to technologically capable um, life. And I, the, the, the reason it's seen as a paradox, and, and I do concur with this, is that. If technologically capable life had been common in the history of the universe, then we would expect to we would expect to have have evidence for it. Um, and, and since we don't, there is the alleged paradox. Um, I mean, I, I don't know whether that answers your answers the question. Well, um, I understand from talking to so many different exoplanet people that we are moving in on decent capabilities for looking for bio-life kinds of signatures, which we really haven't had that capability before. We have it in a limited way now, and uh, they estimate within a decade with new instrumentation and stuff like that, we will be able to detect much more of what's in an exoplanet's atmosphere and things like that. So, So maybe the signs are there, and we just haven't emerged with enough technological capability to find them yet, but in a decade, all of a sudden, we'll find them everywhere. Is that, how, how does that relate to Fermi and your work? Well, so, so I agree completely. I think we are, we are entering the, the stage where in the coming decades, we will have an answer to the question, or, or we're, more, we're likely to have an answer to the question, whether life itself um, is common in the universe or not. So, and, and that is a very key question to answer when it comes to considering the Fermi paradox because it will tell us whether life itself is common or not but the Fermi paradox doesn't really address that question it really only addresses whether technologically advanced um, really strictly speaking interstellar spacefaring civilizations are common in the universe or have been common in the universe and so this in a sense the discovery that life is common I mean, if, if in 50 years' time we discover that we do a survey of 100 nearby Earth-like exoplanets 
and we find they all have biosignatures in their atmospheres, this will tell us that life is really common in the universe, and that will be a fantastic discovery. But it makes the Fermi paradox worse, because if life is really common in the universe, then where is that subset of the life that develops technical capabilities that we don't see? So absolutely, it's part of the equation, um, but it's not obvious to me it would solve Fermi's paradox. I think, I think it would make it worse. Whereas, if in, if, if in 100 years, if in 50 years' time, we've done a survey of 100 nearby Earth-like exoplanets within the habitable zones of their stars, and none of them have biosignatures, then this is, this is pointing to a possible solution of the Fermi paradox, because it was telling us that life is rare. And if life is rare, technological civilizations will be even rarer. Therefore, it wouldn't be a surprise that we don't um, haven't seen any evidence for it. And so that would that would be a, go a long way to answering Fermi's paradox, I think. Uh, it would. Uh, jump forward and tell us what the zoo hypothesis is. Yes. So, so my colleague, I mean, this paper was written by myself and my colleague Dirk Schultz Macau at the uh, the Technical University of Berlin. And it arises from a, a chance conversation we had at a meeting in Edinburgh um, about a year or so ago, an astrobiology meeting. And I, 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 we were talking about it, and I, I just felt that we can go to all the proposed solutions to the Fermi paradox. Obviously, over the years, there have been many, many solutions. There's an excellent Wikipedia page that lists all, all solutions to the Fermi paradox, and also many excellent books that have, that have reviewed it. But none of, none of the alleged uh, solutions to the Fermi paradox really seem to, um, well, I'm not convinced by, by most of them. Um, except that there is, there is one obvious way that you could square the circle and have extraterrestrial intelligent life being common and us not observing it. Well, there are two easy solutions to that. One is that, they, that we don't observe them because they don't exist. That, that's the nothing bit of the title. The other possibility is, yes, they do exist, and they're all around us, but they're deliberately hiding from us. And then we still wouldn't know, because they're hiding from us. And that, that is commonly known as the zoo hypothesis. It, it takes its name from a paper by John Ball, published in Icarus in 1973, with the, the zoo hypothesis for the title, uh, where he argued that, yeah, the extraterrestrial civilizations may be all around us, but they're effectively keeping us in a zoo. That's where the zoo comes from. Um, and they're keeping themselves uh, hidden. They're not interfering with us because they have, well, well, for whatever reason, they may have strong ethical codes against interfering with inhabited planets, that would be something like the prime directive in the Star Trek universe, or they may be just observing us for their own scientific purposes or whatever, but in any case, they're hiding from us, and so that's a new hypothesis. And, of course, if they're hiding from us effectively, that is also an answer to Fermi's question. Um, so, how do you how do you confirm any of this? I mean, I guess by finding an advanced technological uh, society. I, I guess that's the only solution, ultimately. Uh, correct. Yes, I think. Well, so obviously, if we were to encounter an alien evidence of alien technology. Suppose the SETI searches uh, start to detect positive um, artificial signals, or if we were to detect uh, alien artifacts in our own solar system, or, or any any what are, what are called techno signatures these days, any any evidence for alien technology, this would answer the question. It would answer the question in the affirmative. It would tell us that that that, 
that the ten alien technological civilizations do exist, and the only reason that we haven't found them yet is because we haven't looked hard enough, which as you alluded to at the beginning. So it would answer the it would answer the question, obviously, if we were to find evidence of alien technology. Um, the fact remains, though, that we haven't, and so it really boils down to the to the question: if alien technological civilizations were common in the universe and have been common throughout the history of the universe, this is a really important point, perhaps I'll elaborate on later, then they are some, some, some fraction of them we would expect to have been doing things that we would notice and we don't. Um, uh, and so that's the paradox. But of course, if they were deliberately hiding from us, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know anyway. So that, that's why, in, 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 in my mind, it does kind of boil down to the absence of evidence, um, I think it is, it is significant because I think we would expect to see evidence that technological civilizations were common unless they're deliberately taking steps to not to be seen. In which case, of course, we wouldn't know differently and, and we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't detect them because they're hiding. It's either that or we don't detect them because they're not there. I mean, that, that's basically the, um, the, 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 um, the two, the two of, two possible solutions to the paradox that Dirk and I wanted to highlight in this article. Uh, you have a, an email. The first one for the day is Todd in San Diego, California. And uh, Todd says, um, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, possibly um, there are such technologies and, and civilizations available. And... Uh, but their life and their biosignatures may be so radically different from ours that maybe we've already been exposed to them, but because they are so different, we have no means or no expertise or experience in recognizing what we have already found. Do you see that as a possibility? Our life is carbon-based. Maybe life from an extraterrestrial is something radically different that we can't even imagine. Well, I certainly agree that life could be so different that we can't imagine it. I mean, that, that is true. So, so yes, this, this, this is a possible, of course it's a possible, possible, a possibility that alien life is so different that we wouldn't be able to notice it or detect it. I mean, it is important to keep an open mind on, 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 on that. Um, but on the other hand, we are talking about technological life. The semi-paradox only really relates to technological Life, and it doesn't really matter what a what a what a, a, an alien species' biology or biochemistry is. Once it's developed a technology, we ought to, the, the, the argument is we ought to be, be able to detect the, the consequences of this alien technology, and, and that would be independent of what their biology is. So I'm not sh- I'm not convinced that, that that's a solution to the Fermi paradox, as the Fermi paradox is usually understood. What, what are the consequences of technology? What are you talking so the te- about? The, con- the consequences become, in, in, in Fermi's original question, when he asked this question in, 19, in 1950, was very much on the lines that why aren't the aliens visiting Earth? Well, it, was, it was an argument about um, if, if technology, if technology is, is, if, if the alien civilizations develop a spacefaring technology, then, in principle, they could have visited the Earth. They could be on the they could be on the Earth today, or they could have visited the Earth in the distant past. Now, 
we wouldn't know whether aliens had visited the Earth in the distant past if they decided to hide from us or not interfere with the Earth, if they'd just come to conduct scientific observations and, and left the Earth essentially untouched. We would not know. But that would fall within the category of the zoo hypothesis class of explanations. Um, one could imagine uh, more aggressive interstellar spacefaring civilizations that might have come across the Earth, say, I don't know, two billion years ago. Two billion years ago, they'd have found the Earth inhabited solely by microorganisms. And they could have argued that here's a planet cover, uh, occupied only by microorganisms. Um, it doesn't look like these microorganisms are going to develop very far, very quickly. So uh, this planet is quite used to be quite important to our society, so why don't we colonize this planet? Well, clearly that has not happened to the Earth. For 4,000 million years, life has existed on the Earth, and we've never been seriously interfered with. We've certainly never been colonized with by alien civilizations from outside the solar system, because if we had been, we wouldn't be here today. And so this is, it's when you look at the kind of the deep history of the galaxy and you imagine the planet sitting here, you know, our own Earth, been sitting here for 4,000, uh, one and a half billion years, but it's had life on it for most of that time, probably 4 billion years. It's been wide open to being interfered with um, from outside, should there have ever been any technical civilizations uh, out there that, that chose to interfere with us for whatever their reasons might be. Uh, and we, we, but we would expect to notice that, or, or indeed we, we might not expect to exist at all <laughs> had that happened in the deep history of the Earth. And it hasn't. And so this is the strongest form of the Fermi paradox. It's not that we don't see any, any other aliens around us today. It's not that the SETI searches aren't detecting any civil, any, any alien transmissions today. It's that in the whole history of the galaxy, 10 billion years worth of galactic history and 4 billion years of Earth history, if there have been technological civilizations in, in, throughout that deep history of the galaxy, they haven't come to the Earth and they haven't, well, they may have come to the Earth and remained hidden, that's the new hypothesis, but they haven't come to the Earth and taken over our planet for their own purposes. Um, and and that, is that key observation uh, it's a key observation that um, Michael Hart, in his uh, classic discussion of this uh, paper he wrote back 50 years ago, he called that fact A, uh, because uh, the fact that the Earth, there are no aliens on the Earth, and as far as we can tell, the Earth has never been colonized by aliens. He considered this such an important observational fact, and they called it fact A, um, and, and this is the this is the, the, the key thing that all proposed solutions to the paradox need to address. Um, and in, in my view, most of the most of the solutions that we propose to date have a hard time hard time explaining away Hart's fact A, unless extraterrestrial civilizations are very rare or absent. In which case, obviously, the whole question evaporates. The Fermi paradox dissolves in that case. You um, have, I was going to say you have a caller waiting on hold, so let's let's oh, jump, yeah, yeah, jump yeah. to your caller. Uh, Good morning, West Coast Time Caller. How are you? Who are you? And where are you calling from? Um, this is John Fort Worth. Hi, John. Uh, yeah, there's two levels of looking at this, uh, kind of two classes I see. One is let's call known physics projection version. In that case, what you're probably could be looking at is just like you say, the rarity of civilizations and also their their lifespans. I mean, 
we don't know how long an advanced civilization lasts until it um, somehow decays. And the other is a great difficulty under known science, let's call it, to doing interstellar travel. I mean, um, it, let's say that you only have one at a time in a galaxy as big as ours. You could still have plenty of intelligent life in the universe. It just isn't local enough to, and travel is so difficult they just don't come here. Or didn't come here, let's say. Okay, well, I mean, I should, I agree with that, of course. But that, that means, that, that, that implicit in that is that intelligent civilizations are rare. I mean, it's true. They're not strictly absent. There may have been one or two in the history of the galaxy, in which case I agree with you. We wouldn't expect to see them. The galaxy is a big place. And if there's only ever been one or two of them, or a small number, a handful in the history of the galaxy, then I agree with you. We wouldn't expect. They would have, chances are they wouldn't have had an opportunity to come here and visit us or interfere with us and say we wouldn't, um, uh, we wouldn't expect to see evidence of them, and that is a valid solution to Fermi's paradox. But the thing is, it breaks down if you start, once you start to imagine that extraterrestrial technological civilizations are really common. If you take a, like Carl Sagan or Frank Drake, who very, very times in their careers argued that there were millions of technological civilizations in the galaxy, um, then that becomes increasingly hard to argue that none of them would have interfered with us, in which case I, 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 I personally would find that very difficult to square with the, the fact that we don't see any evidence for them. Yeah. Well, that's, and certainly that's that. I mean, I, I would, of course, the, I guess the other angle hunt would be, the, would be to go the other way, which is assumption two is that there are possibilities for really, you know, robust travel beyond known physics, something like you have in Star Trek or whatever uh, or more. And in that case, you get into what I would call the uh, the current UAP issue. I mean, um, for instance, the Fermi paradox, the irony of it is when Fermi was at Los Alamos and had that conversation, the security people at Los Alamos were concerned about all the UAP or, or UFOs, they call them then, phenomena around the, around the site. <laughs> so, you know, you, it's kind of interesting from that point of view, in my opinion. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I don't know whether you, I mean the the, um, the 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 excellent history of that Los Alamos conversation uh, published by um, yes Eric Jones um, and uh, it, it seems I mean it's interesting you mentioned UFOs because uh, uh, Jones as Jones pieced together the history that whole lunchtime conversation was stimulated by a uh, a cartoon I think it was in the New York Post or. Uh, some New York newspaper that showed it, it flying saucers stealing um, stealing um, trash bins from parks. And some people mm-hmm. used to thought, you know, trash bins are disappearing. Maybe UFOs are stealing. And uh, it seems that someone talked and raised this during this Los Alamos discussion, and that's what, in a sense, UFO, the idea of UFOs might have, and a cartoon based on them may have figured this whole mm-hmm. conversation. Um, I, I think... If it were true, if one could demonstrate that UAPs are alien visitors to to the Earth, then that is a solution to Fermi's paradox. The Fermi's paradox would then be solved. Uh, I mean, Fermi's question would then be solved. It would not be a paradox. And the answer is, actually, they are here. The UAPs are the alien visitors, and that would answer the question. Um, The only reason, I mean, there are multiple reasons, actually, why I, I doubt that, I really doubt that UAPs are alien spaceships, but if they were, 
then that would solve the question. Of course it would. Yeah, it would. It was, I guess would lead you into the area of the zoo hypothesis then, because that is to say that they are not making overt um, society-to-society uh, uh, contact. They may be doing various things, um, you know, doing biological examinations or experimentations or whatever they're doing, but they, they aren't, you know, going, landing on the U.N. building and saying, okay, um, <laughs> I want to speak to the General Assembly and <laughs> on behalf of our uh, civilization, right? They're not doing that. <laughs> no, but, you know, they, they could be making contact with different governments, and we would never know because they would never tell us, and they would cover it up and lie well, and go to their death chamber with that secret on their tongue. That may well be the case. Uh, I mean, but... We're like, going down a rabbit warren of conspiracy theories here, unless we're, we're careful. I mean, I, I think... If, if, nevertheless, it's important to keep an open mind, but, but just while I've got this thought in my head, I mean, it does seem, if the, if the aliens are visiting the Earth today and they're trying to maintain a zoom, then, mm-hmm. then it seems strange. I mean, it seems quite bizarre, even, you know, frankly incompetent behavior, because they're not maintaining the zoom. They're allowing themselves to be glimpsed, uh, you know, occasionally by, by airline pilots or by people on deserted country roads. And they're not landing on the UN building or the White House lawn, as you say. Who knows what their motivations would be, but it's kind of strange behavior for super intelligent technological species, which is what we would be dealing with, uh, to allow themselves, who are trying to maintain a zoo, but sort of failing, <laughs> failing miserably. Um, I, so that's one of the reasons I frankly don't believe that UAP is uh, well, maybe then an absolute zoo. Maybe it's just uh, there's certain things that they allow. And I mean, we'd have to assume that there's some kind of an organization, at least one civilization, or if it's multiple, as some of the people really in this think it is, they must have a, a, a an agreement or an organization, kind of a federation or a UN, or what do you think of it, that kind of sets the rules of behavior. And, and maybe some of them violate the rules occasionally. That's another possibility. I mean, you know, at least with, you're dealing with humans, there are people that you have rules, but people violate them, and, <laughs> and they, you have to rein them in then. So maybe that's it, and maybe they really don't care if there's casual observations. They just don't want to totally disrupt everything. You know, I mean, it's an interesting question, you know, what the, what, what they would be doing if they are here. That's That gets into, like you say, in your energy talk conspiracy. It's off the, off the basic subject, but it still falls into your zoo concept, I think, basically in some form. I mean... Art Bell, when he was alive and doing his radio shows in the 90s and before, used to have great conspiracy theories that they were in the government and had actually disguised as humans, and we had elected them, and they were running our government. Uh, for old Art Bell listeners, I'm sure you you remember some of those kinds of really uh, entertaining and entertainment okay. kind of shows. I, I think I think even this may be testable, though. And I think um, if we kind of imagine what kind of galaxy we live in, if, if the UAPs were really alien spaceships. Then they're visiting the Earth, yes. So, and, and they're visiting us today at the same time that human beings uh, are, are, are alive. So this would imply, to me, this would imply that we live in a very inhabited galaxy. I mean, yeah, the aliens mm-hmm. may be here, they may be in their federation, they may have set up rules for the zoo. Some some operators may not be obeying the rules. 
but it implies that a whole galactic society of technologically advanced civilizations out there in the background. Now, currently, we, we might expect to see some evidence for that, in, you know, in addition to the UAPs. Uh, we might mm-hmm. expect the SETI signals to be in the sky to be full of artificial radio traffic or laser beams or, um, or, or other, as, other aspects of technology in the background where this, this super civilization is presumably, you know, is, is living. And we don't see any of that. We're still in David Brin's great silence. We look out into the sky and we see a lot of interesting astrophysics going on, but there's no evidence of minds at work. Uh, and you might, if the UAPs were visiting from such a civilization in a highly populated galaxy, I kind of suspect we might, um, we might see supporting evidence additional evidence that this kind of galactic society exists. And, and currently we, you know, currently we don't see any supporting evidence. The UAPs are just there on their own without any other evidence for an inhabited galaxy in the background. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe the nearest really inhabited um, solar system that really has a high civilization in it is still far enough away that our means of detecting exoplanets alike, it's just further away than that, maybe. Because we're assuming, if, in the, my version, too, is they really do have something that would violate no laws of physics, basically some kind of faster and light travel. If they do have that, then, you know, <laughs> they could be quite, a, they could be a thousand light years away or something, the nearest major outpost or something, and, you know, they just pop in here and, you know, we don't detect their home world yet. Even, even, even that, though, even if that were true, I mean, obviously, in, in principle, it might be true. But suppose, even for the sake of argument, suppose there was some super advanced civilization a thousand light years away from us. Why is it sending the UAPs to us now? Presumably, only because they've noticed that we've started to develop a technology. Perhaps they've discovered our radio waves. But our radio waves have only gone a hundred light years into the, um, into, into, into the galaxy. So even... Even if they were a thousand light years away, they, you know, they wouldn't have detected our, I mean, they might, for all I know, they might be able to travel a thousand light years instantaneously. But, but yeah. they still must be close to the hundred light years in order to have seen any, any radio signals from the Earth. So, so yeah. I, I still find it difficult to believe that you've got a very small number of very advanced civilizations who spend most of their time thousands of light years away, but are still <clears> able to send UAPs to the Earth, um, you know, just just now at the present you know the present epoch in human history i mean, i'm not i'm not saying it's impossible but it doesn't it doesn't seem very plausible to me john you need you need to wrap it up so we can see if we can get another caller in okay it's an interesting discussion though I liked your idea about the early, that they didn't do anything, you know, in really geological time that really fundamentally changed it. That's an interesting point you made, though. I'll get off this and see who else calls in. Thank you, John. Okay, thank you. Um, listeners, um, John has vacated our phone line. If you would like to call, it is toll-free, 1-866-687-7223. If you happen to be in the U.K. or outside the United States and you want to call, I doubt that our toll-free number works, but if you email me at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at spaceshow.com, I will send you the direct dial area code and phone number so that you can just call in. Of course, the area code is 702, excuse me, yeah, 702 for Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, most countries don't allow toll-free calling back to the United States, and 
Uh, that's beyond my pay grade, but um, I'm, I'm happy to get you the direct dial phone number if you're interested. Email uh, remains, of course, Space at thespaceshow.com. Uh, have you uh, gotten any uh, feedback? What did the peers say? I, I noticed that you were published online December 28th, so that's roughly three months ago or two months ago. Um, what kind of feedback are you getting or are you getting any at all? Oh yes, we get we 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 we're getting some feedback. I usually, it's, it's, I mean, people are very engaged, and, and and I'm glad about that because the whole point of this article, firstly, it has a question. And finally, we did get you know we've got a long title, but we did finally manage to convince the editor to put a question mark in. It. <laughs> um, so, so our purpose here was not to make a dogmatic assertion that it's like the zoo hypothesis of aliens don't exist. Our, our purpose was to raise this question and to stimulate a debate. And, and we are stimulating a debate. And many of the feedback I, I've had uh, have come, uh, have been, you know, people's various solutions, favorite solutions to the paradox, of which there are dozens. Um, and they're, they're all valid and interesting, um, but for one reason or another, we're apart from versions of the zoo hypothesis. I don't find, I just don't find them compelling. <laughs> so I haven't yet had any feedback that, moves me from my suggestion, our suggestion, because there are two authors to this paper, Dirks and my suggestion, um, that either ETIs are very rare, or if they're not rare, then they must be hiding from us as the only other explanation for why we see no evidence of them. What is the difference between rare and non-existent? Well, that's a very interesting <laughs> point. Uh, point of question, and, and, and there is no obviously no dividing line somewhere between. I mean, let's let's say let's say there've been over the whole history of the galaxy. Uh, let's say there've been half a dozen spacefaring technological civilizations. Then that would count as rare, and I would not expect us to necessarily have seen any evidence for such a small number of technological civilizations. And so, it, you know, that would act a solution to the Finney paradox, which is consistent with a small number of technological civilizations in the history of the galaxy that have left no evidence of their presence. On the other hand, the, the idea that there might be millions of technological civilizations in the galaxy, or even millions over the history of the galaxy, which is what um, people like uh, Drake and Sagan and other, of course, techy optimists sometimes assume, that would count as not rare, and I, I just think that would be utterly inconsistent <laughs> with the fact that we don't see any evidence of technology. So, yes, it's not very helpful. Somewhere between half a dozen and a million, I mean, who knows? I, I, my personal view is that I can think of plausible, plausible reasons why we might not detect or would not expect to have detected a small number, a dozen, say, of technological civilizations in the history of the galaxy, and that would count as rare. Um. George is um, in Dallas, Texas, and he says, um, I'm curious what you think of the SETI searches. Is SETI an effective tool to look for advanced technology? What are your thoughts on SETI as the main tool for searching for extraterrestrial technological societies? Uh, yeah, well, th thanks, George. I mean, I think, I think SETI clearly is an important tool. 
Uh, and, and we should keep on looking, because if we don't look, we'll never find anything. So I, my personal view is SETI is an important component of this. It's absolutely essential that we keep uh, keep the SETI programs going. We should expand them as much as possible. We should expand them to non-radio domains, like lasers and um, uh, other microwaves and uh, gamma rays, who knows, neutrinos. We should be doing everything that we can to look for contemporary biosignatures as part of our attempt to understand what's really going on and how common technological life really is. Um, but there is a fundamental problem with all forms of SETI, whether they're just radio SETI or neutrino SETI or <laughs> laser uh, visible SETI, whatever. SETI is predicated on finding technological civilizations that exist at the same time as we do. Or, you know, or stock, or almost. I mean, okay, so a galaxy is 100,000 light years across there. So a radio SETI detection from the other side of the galaxy would be 100,000 years old. But basically, they're searching for civilizations that are contemporaneous with human society. It's extraordinarily, unless extraterrestrial intelligence is really common in the universe, the chance that we're going to have many, or even any, such civilizations extent at exactly the same time that we are extant, is quite small. So for these reasons, although I think SETI should be, we should continue to look and we should expand it, I'm not myself expecting SETI to come up trumps with any positive detections, because that would mean that civilizations are um, really very, very common, because unless they're very, very common, the chances of you having two in the galaxy existing at the same time are really small. Whereas the Fermi paradox has this deeper time, temporal aspect to it, because it, it asks the question of, would we expect to see evidence of all the technological civilizations that have existed in the history of the galaxy? I mean, maybe there aren't any today, or not many today, but over the history of the galaxy, in principle, there could, there, there could have been tens of thousands or even millions, uh, and yet we don't see any evidence of those either. So there is this, 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 this SETI search is certainly part of it, part of what we should be doing to, to answer this issue, uh, address this question, but it's not the only part. And if, if I could just have another 20 seconds to, to say what I think additional, additional things we could do. Uh -huh. We should be searching, we should be searching for um, uh, artifacts, alien artifacts elsewhere in our own solar system. Because Although I made the point the aliens could have come to the Earth in the distant past, and they haven't interfered with Earth biologically evolution perceptibly, which they haven't, because here we are, that doesn't mean they couldn't have come in the distant past and, and monitored the Earth and left evidence of their visit behind. Either debris left behind from their visit, or even, or even active um, probes left within our solar system to keep an eye on them. And so we should be looking for those. So that's another aspect of techno-signature searches, looking for extraterrestrial artifacts within our own solar system. We barely started doing that, and I think we should, uh, we should expand such searches. What would you expect an artifact to be that we could detect? Well, there's a whole spectrum of possibilities. Um, it's just possible that Jim Bedford... Uh, Benford is on the line. He told me he's listening. He told me he would be. I mean, Jim has suggested that we should be searching the solar system for active probes that may be lurking. He calls them lurkers for a good reason. 
lurking, maybe in the in the in the asteroid belt, maybe in the Oort cloud. It'd be very difficult to detect using very little power, but nevertheless keeping an active an active eye on on what we're doing. They'd be like active probes. But but you could also imagine that if there had been visitations to the solar system millions or billions of years ago, suppose they'd visited the moon, set up a base camp on the moon, abandoned it, then evidence, physical evidence might 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 be left behind. Um, and then there's a very interesting idea um, proposed um, in the, the early 80s by a, um, a Ukrainian astronomer named uh, Alexei Arkhipov. Um, would you like me to explain Arkhipov's idea? But I, I will, but it will take me a few more... Uh, <laughs> It's only a few more minutes to fully explain. So perhaps I should pause and see if there's any, anyone's got any questions on what I've said so far. Well, well what are his uh, – give us his ideas. If you're going to tell us right. what he's proposing, tell us something about him. Yes. We probably yes, have so, not heard so, of him, yeah. Yes, so Archipov, um, he, he published in fairly obscure places. Uh, many, much of his material is published in Russian journals. He published in English in uh, what are relatively obscure yeah. places like the – Ian, like the, uh, hello. Hold, hold on, Ian, because we have a listener that called, and I don't want him to sit and wait for ten minutes. Okay, yeah, 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 go ahead. So, so we'll come back to Ukraine, okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, and good afternoon, caller. Welcome uh, to the space show. Who are you? Where are you? Thank you for calling. Hi, I I am Jim Benford. That, that, that <laughs> my friend just referred to. I am listening, and uh, I wanted to comment upon his comment because I've been giving a lot of talks about this issue in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, I think that it's quite uh, reasonable to look for artifacts uh, in the near solar system because uh, although SETI, as a listening to stars, SETI is listening to, into deep space, by looking for artifacts, we are looking into deep time. That is, if someone, some civilization sent a probe by Earth a million years ago and perhaps put it nearby, it would still be there. And therefore, we can look into whether if probes were sent to observe the ecosphere of Earth or the civilization of Earth into the deep past by going out and looking if they, are there any remains of a visitation. The first place to look is the moon because it's nearby and because we have over six million photos produced by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, that have been largely unexamined. And so the easy thing to do first is to use AI to look through those photos and see if they see anything that looks artificial. Uh, and what is artificial I can talk about separately. The um, other nearby objects that we have not looked at are the Earth co-orbitals, which are a few million miles from Earth and go around the sun at the same rate we do once a year and therefore look like they're quasi-satellites of Earth, second, third, fourth satellites. There are about 10 of them so far we've discovered in the last 20 years. And the furthest out uh, objects that we haven't really looked at at all are the Earth's Trojans, uh, 60 degrees uh, in advance or behind the Earth in its orbit, just like the Trojans, the many Trojans of Jupiter, Earth has Trojans. We've discovered two of them so far. They're hard to see, but they could certainly see us. And we're not doing any of that at this time, are we? We're not doing any of that at all. And the thing that's frustrating to me is that it's easy to look at existing photographs, and nobody's doing it. 
the photographs, I mean, of the surface of the moon, which have resolutions down to the point where you can actually see the uh, wheel tracks of lunar rovers left there by Apollo 40 more years ago. You can see those in photographs. We could certainly inspect the millions of photographs of the surface of the moon and look for uh, signs of artificial uh, uh, artificial inter- interference or presence. Jim, do you think we don't do this as a budget item for for the, the conspiracy folks that think all of this is a big conspiracy? Are we doing it, not doing it for some nefarious reason or secret reason? Well, I, th- I, 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 I prefer uh, the, the most likely motivation for me seems to me that it's a rice bowl issue for this existing SETI program. The existing program is made up of observers, astronomers, using telescopes or radio telescopes or optical telescopes, and they don't do uh, inspections or photographs uh, by AI, and they don't do sending missions to co-orbitals or the moon. They don't do that, so it's outside their skill set. And uh, SETI research has been starved for decades, although in the last nine years, the Breakthrough Listen program has funded it at the level of $10 million a year, which is serious, and they've gathered a great deal of data. They have now been funded for another 10 years, uh, another five years, and they, uh, I, I think the SETI people want to just keep on keeping on because that's their business, and they don't want to discontinue it. So this kind of proposal could be seen as a bit threatening by them. But there's no roadblocks to another organization, entity, or group that wants to take this on, I take it, right? I, 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 think, I think that the issue is not I, – I think – so, hi, Jim. It's great, 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 great to hear you, and I, I agree with everything you've said, and that especially the artifacts probe the deep time of the galaxy, This is, and SETI doesn't, and this is a really, really important point to, to, to get across. I should just say, though, that these are not, um, as David just alluded to, they're not mutually exclusive. The SETI people can continue to search for SETI, and I think they, they should do. And that's not inconsistent with having other groups of uh, technological artifacts within the solar system, and I think we should do that as well. I should just say it's not quite true that nobody's doing it. I, I have a PhD student who just, his name is Lewis Pino, and he passed his PhD viva just last week, and his our PhD thesis is on exactly this. Are developing AI algorithms to search for L-Rock, search L-Rock images for, uh, for potential artifacts on the moon. So I, I think I'm aware of a couple of other groups who've also you know, started to do this. I think the, the main stumbling block is, is the giggle factor. It, it's that people established, SETI has very successfully established itself now as mainstream art of astrobiology, whereas alien artifacts are still slightly, wrongly, of course, in my view, but a searching for alien artifacts are still slightly tarred with the UFO brush as being a bit little, searching for little green men and in some sense not being serious. And that's an impediment. It's an impediment certainly for young scientists, you know, at the beginning of their careers, who would, who would, who would, Lewis is exceptional because he's a mature student and he has one PhD already, so he doesn't need another PhD. But if you're a young student in your 20s, are you really going to do a PhD on looking for alien artifacts on the moon? Because you might start to worry about what a future employer would think if, if they saw that on their CV. So I, I think that's more of the obstacle rather than a, you know, 
But Ian, uh, Ian, uh, that doesn't seem to be an obstacle for people seeking PhDs by search by the steady search methods we're using now. In fact, there are whole programs and lots of people getting PhDs in places as different as UC Berkeley and Oxford. Yeah, and but that's because SETI that, is now respectable. And it's good that it's respectable. What I'm saying is SETI is perceived to be respectable by the mainstream science community and searching for artifacts is not yet seen to be respectable. I mean, that's, that's the point I'm making. Yes, and that's one reason, one thing that's good about this field is that we've gotten away from the word SETI and we now talk about technosignatures because that's all you can actually see. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, artifact is a technosignature. So, basically, it's uh, they're in the same category, so I don't see any reason why people wouldn't want to get a PhD uh, looking for uh, unusual features on the moon. It's already been done to look for things like uh, uh, landslides and uh, they're caused by moonquakes. There's already literature of looking through photographs for that. So it seems to me like it's just uh, uh, something that's just waiting to happen. Somebody's going to realize that there's something to be done here, and uh, it's just a matter of time. I did a. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's just the culture of science moves slowly. Uh, but things are. The, 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 Broadening of the field to this word technosignature and perhaps with, which now has multiple parts, including city, but also including artifacts. Yes, I fully agree with you. This is a very positive development. Uh, and I think it will stimulate more and more mainstream scientists to start looking for artifacts. I had yes, a, we should, we should do so. I had a student last year, a PhD student from St. Louis, who was searching the entire planet of Venus for volcanoes that had not yet been discovered. So that's pretty esoteric. And uh, she, had, she had mapped them and was getting national recognition for it. And uh, uh, she was a guest on the space show about the research and how she did it. So I, I guess you could search Venus for artifacts maybe too. Who knows? But um hard to do through that atmosphere. Uh, let me let me comment on one other aspect, David. Okay. Uh, the uh, SETI, as it's usually thought of, that is listening to the stars, is not actually falsifiable science. You can listen forever. You can listen to more and more stars, but it's it's an infinite search in principle. However, searching for nearby artifacts, and you'd want to be nearby so you could observe Earth. Searching for nearby artifacts is falsifiable. So go out there, look around these areas, as I've suggested, and after a, a 10 or 20 years of doing that, you have largely eliminated a possibility. And so it becomes, it's in fact more of a science than the existing SETI program, because it is falsifiable. Uh, I have a question that came in, and, and maybe both of you want to comment on this. It's from... Uh, Sandy, and, and Sandy's in Seattle, and she says, um, there have been many naysayers that have arisen to complain about humans going into space, doing things on the moon, such as the Celestis attempt to uh, have ashes there for remains. Uh, lots and lots of diverse objections have been coming in on the space tourism side for several years. And I think the Celestis burial was the most recent. Do you believe that if 
we started a search like you're talking about, that the naysayers would rise up in arms about the energy, time, and money being spent on something that they would likely see as not essential and a folly? Well, they, they, the little, naysayers the always arise. Naysayers uh, one, uh, one at a time, okay? So, uh, Jim, you want to go first? Okay, naysayers always arise, and they will object to us exploring Mars, for example. But these are uh, the, the nearby objects are certainly dead. There's no life there for us to interfere with. And I wonder if, why didn't the naysayers complain when we started to explore Antarctica, where certainly no humans had been before? Nobody said anything about that. Um, the, uh, uh, so we've been to the moon. I don't remember anybody complaining that we went there. Uh, as, but uh, the fact that these places are pristine merely means that the life of Earth hasn't gotten there yet. <laughs> um, Ian, do you have a comment on naysayers? Well, only the, I mean, there are people who, who do complain about the fact that we went to the moon 50 years ago because they, they imagine and, 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 you know, there is a point of view there are better things to spend the money on. I mean, you'll always have a, um, a spectrum of opinion. So I think, uh, you know, it's fine to have a discussion amongst a spectrum of opinion. All I would say is I do think this fundamental question, if we, if we just go back and take a bigger picture, the fundamental question here is, how common is technological life in the universe? We know we exist. The question is, are there any others? Have there ever been any others? Now, this is a really deep question, and it's fundamental to how we see humanity's place in the universe. So I think it's a very important question to address, and therefore I think it is worth the rather modest sums of money that we spend on it. And indeed, I think we should expand it, as I said. So um, I don't know whether that answers the question. Uh, Jim, do you have anything else you'd like to offer, or I'll see if someone else wants to Yes, uh, just one thing. The ideal, uh, it seems to me the most likely funder of, a wor- of looking for artifacts would be the Breakthrough Foundation, which is already the principal funder of SETI, Searching for Stars SETI. Uh, they could, for modest amounts, begin such a search by looking at lunar photographs from the LRO, and so I think that the Breakthrough Foundation uh, could initiate that for less than a million dollars. You can use AI to look for artifacts on the moon, uh, although uh, how you do it is uh, a matter of discussion. After all, the artifacts could be disguised. But uh, I think they're, they're the principal people who uh, should be funding it, and I have suggested it to them, but they have made no comment. Uh, I have a question for both of you. Uh, from uh, John in Fort Worth, Texas, and he says the discussion of objects raises the question about the work that Avi Loeb has been doing, looking for extrasolar objects. Uh, what do you think about uh, his search for interstellar objects and uh, what his work involves? Well, I, I, I think it's important. We, we, I mean, this is all part of the wider technosignature search, and I think it's important that we should look. I mean, obviously, if we don't look, we'll we'll never find. And so we should keep looking. We should keep looking for um, extraterrestrial artifacts and and, and through all possible means. So I think Loeb's um, Galileo project, I think he calls it, at Harvard, yes, it is a very positive positive development. Uh, 
Jim, do you have a thought on what Loeb is doing? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I've been, uh, I was in a group of people, about a dozen of us, who spoke with Avi right after he finished that uh, exploration. And um, one of them, who's um, a meteorite specialist, pointed out that these uh, round balls, small round iron balls that he found on the bottom of the sea, uh, is a fairly common occurrence uh, for various geological and astrophysical reasons. And therefore, you'd have to compare what he found to a, a, a random area chosen where, <laughs> and see whether or not it really differs because he, he looked there because of a known interstellar object that hit the Earth's atmosphere and fell in the ocean uh, in the South Pacific. And so it needs a, 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 a test case that's away from where we think anything has fallen in uh, to, to uh, give a calibration on the veracity of the, his interpretation. Was the composition of those modules so unique? that he wouldn't have to do a test case? Well, he, he claimed so, but it, that comes down to uh, the identification of specific isotopes and metallurgy about which I have no expertise. So I have no comment on uh, how insightful it is. He claims their significance, but uh, I think there is a fair brand, a band of skeptical comments on it. So uh, that's the way science is. All right. Um, Jim, anything else, or I'll see if somebody else wants to call during the rest of the program. Uh, no, that, that's all I had to say. It was good to hear from Ian, uh, my old friend Ian, and uh, and I hope that uh, the search for uh, uh, techno signatures continues vigorously. Goodbye. Uh, I do too. Thank you, Jim, yep. very <laughs> much. Um, listeners, Jim has uh, vacated the line. There is still time if you would like to call in and talk to Ian. Eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three, and you can use uh, email Doctor Space D R S P A C E at thespaceshow.com to continue your discussions. Um, I, I know Avi is looking for objects that are that have landed here on Earth by hook or crook, so to speak. Um, is in your opinion, is there any validity in really broad, wide-scale searches for artifacts here on Earth? Uh, yes, although I don't think the Earth is the best place to look because the Earth is such a geologically and meteorologically active body. The Moon, on the other hand, is a, I think there is an argument for looking for such artifacts on the Moon. Now, this, sorry, I, I promised to tell you about Archipop, because this is precisely his suggestion. Right, the Ukrainian and suggest- astronomer. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, that's right. He was publishing um, uh, in rather obscure places 40 years ago. But he, I think his key ideas are, are, are often overlooked. So his idea was that every, every spacefaring civilization that appears in the galaxy, in the history of the galaxy, is likely to generate a great deal of space debris, as we know. We are generating a lot of space debris. If we get to the asteroid mining stage, we'll be generating even more space debris. But even to any time, all the past technological civilizations that have existed in the history of the galaxy will have been producing a large amount of space debris. Archipov's idea was that much of this space debris would be ejected from the solar systems in which it was formed, even if, they, even if the, the civilization producing it 
doesn't do it deliberately, even if it made the decision not to invest in interstellar space travel, but just to industrialize its own planetary system, it will produce a lot of debris in this planetary system, and a lot of that debris will get pushed out by radiation pressure and stellar winds into the interstellar medium. The more technological civilizations that have been in the history of the galaxy, the more the interstellar medium will be polluted by space debris. And Antipop was thinking mostly a very small, micron-sized particle, um, and there could be zillions and zillions of those. And the more, the more technological civilizations that have existed in the history of the galaxy, the point is the more of this stuff will be present in the interstellar medium. Meanwhile, the solar system goes around the galaxy every 200 million years, uh, essentially sampling the interstellar medium. So an airless body, like the moon, well, as it runs through the interstellar medium, if the interstellar medium is full of us, well, not full, but contains some, some, some fraction of artificial objects, which are sort of space debris, not deliberately sent to the Earth, but the solar system just, just runs into it as we orbit the galaxy. And so Archipov's idea is that we should keep an eye out for this, this kind of space debris that's coming into the solar system from outside. And the more civilizations, more technological civilizations that have existed in the history of the galaxy, the more of this stuff there will be. And so his suggestion is we should look for it. And I, I think he was right. Um, but that's not happening either, is it? No, but it would be diff- no, no, but but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't. So, in the context of life exploring the moon, uh, as we develop the moon, we're probably going to want to process a lot of regolith, uh, all sorts of purposes to extract volatiles from, or to use it as a building material. So, one could imagine, and this is really my 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 PhD student Lewis Pino's work. Uh, which he, we have impressed, by the way, so hopefully we will have a paper out <laughs> sooner rather than later. But if you were an industrial corporation mining the regolith, or I don't know, well, I'm personally not a fan of helium-3, but many people are. Suppose you were mining the lunar regolith for helium-3 or other solar wind implanted volatiles. You're going to have to load this stuff onto a conveyor belt and shift it through to some processing facility. So why not have the conveyor belt monitored with some presumably AI-involved um, sensing uh, sensor with some sensing algorithm. And it, and, it, and it just lets the regolith go through from where you've dug it up to the helium-3 processor or whatever it is, but you just monitor it. And, and as we monitor thousands and thousands of tons of lunar regolith, if these artifacts are present in the lunar soil, then then this, you know, this might be a way to find them. And that would be a, a nice synergy. You wouldn't have to invest a massive space program to look for the alien artifacts, because that probably wouldn't pass the giggle factor test. All you would have to do is develop a sensor that you would give to whatever commercial operators are mining the regolith for their own industrial commercial purposes, and just ask them to put this, you know, put this machine somewhere where it can look at their conveyor belt. And that would be a way of monitoring over time a very large volume of lunar regolith to see whether there's anything interesting um, hidden in it. You have another uh, email question from Christian in Boston. And Christian says, I really don't get it. If we're looking for uh, technologically advanced, then they probably have some intelligence. Not, not sure about their wisdom, but they probably have some intelligence. What is their motivation to go to such extremes to to keep another 
uh, intelligent technical civilization, i.e. Earth, from discovering them. Uh, one can conjure up ethical reasons, Star Trek reasons, things like that. But seriously, Earth is technological, and we're not going through any efforts to disclose or, or hide or do anything about our technological waste, our TV and radar signals that have been beaming out into space for decades. There's no program that the people are aware of where we're going to extra efforts to hide our presence. Why do you think an ET civilization would be so different from Earth and put resources in to hiding themselves? So, thank you, Christian. This is an excellent question, and I, I don't necessarily think that they would. But here I have to come clean. There is a difference of opinion between the two authors on this article that we're discussing, the zoo hypothesis or nothing. So, I, I, I mean, I, I accept that if the aliens were hiding from us, we wouldn't see them, and therefore this would be a solution to the semi-paradox. But I, like you, am doubtful that all, given that there could have been a lot of the whole point about the, you know, the whole problem of the paradox is, is to square the possibility that there have been lots and lots of civilizations in the history of the galaxy. So it's kind of situation is even worse than you would suggest. It would be they, they would all have to agree. They would all have to agree on non They'd all have to agree with the same non-interference policy. They'd all have to agree on the same prime directive. And I actually find that quite unlikely. Um, on the other hand, my colleague, Dirk, on this paper, is much more sympathetic to the zoo hypothesis, and so he would probably be the person to have fully defending the zoo hypothesis. Um, and so we've kind of agreed to differ, and that's why, that's why we've got uh, the zoo hypothesis or nothing in the title. I personally, for the reasons, exactly the reasons you give, I personally am doubtful that the zoo hypothesis um, is a is a viable solution to the Fermi paradox if technological civilizations had been really common, because I can't see them all agreeing on the same set of rules for the zoo. Um, so my preferred solution, I just have to come clean at this point, my preferred solution for the Fermi paradox is that technological civilizations are probably non-existent or, 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 or very rare, so rare that we wouldn't expect to have seen them. But my colleague Dirk, on the other hand, um, is, um, I mean, Dirk may be listening as well, for all I know. <laughs> Perhaps he should call in if he is, and he could, he could, he could speak for himself. Um, but Dirk is much more optimistic about the evolution of technological civilizations in the galaxy. But then he has to explain why we don't see them, and so he is more sympathetic to the zoo hypothesis. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but... Uh, it's very frustrating. <laughs> uh, but, but, but I think, I think David, it needn't, it is, it is frustrating, of course. But, but there is, we have it before as the way to get to grips with this. And it just means spending more resources on exploring the universe around you. Well, right? so, I was going to say, part of the frustration is, Ian, that uh, while I haven't done academic work to pursue this, it's not my job, and it never was. I've, I've had an interest in it since I was probably looking through a Cub Scout telescope at five years of age and watching, you know, great flying saucer movies in the, in the, in the 50s and, and uh, onward. And, uh, and so now I'm, I'm approaching 78, and, uh, you know, more of my life is behind me than ahead of me by any rational thought. And we, we don't have the answers, and we 
aren't doing the searches that could get these answers, and that for the millions of people around the world who have been interested in this topic, uh, and not the wackos, I'm not talking about the crazies, but they're interested in it too. But um, here, here we we have the tools and the technology to search for for answers, and and we're not doing it, and it's not likely from my perspective, or realistic from my perspective, that we're going to get the answers in uh, in older people's usable remaining lifetime. And that's as frustrating uh, as it is not having the answer to study. The, the fact that we have not done this when so many millions of people have an interest in it and also pay their taxes, and again, I'm not talking about the crazies, and this is worldwide because people are interested in Canada and South America and other countries in the UK where you are. So it's not just that the U.S. hasn't done it. Uh, so it, the lack of process, the lack of doing it, is as frustrating as the fact that we don't know the answer. And and here we are, as they say in literature, the twilight of our years, and we're still not doing it. And Jim proposed some great ideas and I've had breakthrough on the show multiple times, and they don't even reply. So, you know, the the system is really screwed up here, and so it's double whammies of frustration. That's about all I can really say. I, 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 yeah, I, I think obviously we can we can be doing more. I mean, I'm completely advocate we should be doing more, but I don't think it's true that nothing is happening. I mean, the SETI searches are valuable, and they are getting better and more sophisticated, and they're being extended to non-radio wavelengths. And Loeb has set up his Galileo project. I mean, I personally don't think the spheres he's found in the bit of the Pacific Ocean he dredged up are evidence of alien artifacts. But nevertheless, this is the approach that one could, you know, he started, and it can be, it can be developed further. And we can look for Jim, Jim Benton's um, uh, lurkers in the solar system. We should we should be doing all of these things Absolutely. much more than we are. But, but it's not quite true to say we're doing nothing because there is there is work in progress. It's just the wheels are turning more slowly. Too than slow. You might like. Too slow. We need more people like you shaking up the 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 thing with your papers and your work and your appearances and uh, uh, and more people like Jim being public and. Uh, these organizations that have the resource, that this should be a priority, but obviously it's not. And, you know, on the space show, of course, the UAP thing has been covered since the first. We don't cover traditional flying saucer or UFO stuff and, and unless it comes up and, and it's kind of entertaining. But, um, you know, probably two-thirds of the space show audience dreads when John calls in to give us a UAP update. Because they have no interest. They, they you know, it, it's black box technology or it's imagination. And and, uh, and so uh, I understand not as many people are interested in it as, say, wanting to go to Mars or wanting to engage in space settlement. Uh, but uh, a lot of us do have this interest and would like to find the answers and, uh, and would like to prioritize the searches and the research uh to a much higher level, both on a national as well as on an entrepreneurial and individual level. So next time a, a private company sends a lunar lander to the moon to do all of this stuff, they ought to m maybe devote a little bit of, uh, of its resources 
to an AI algorithm to, to search the surrounding regolith like you've suggested or to be able to do something on the moon to maybe do some kind of basic search for things that are abnormal that, that might be artifacts. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree. And, uh, of course, that wasn't part of IM-1, but maybe the next lander that they send or another company that will send a lander will devote a tiny bit of resources to some kind of uh, artifact search for landing on the moon. There's a lot of private companies that uh, want to go to the moon, and, and they can come up with a, an AI algorithm to do some kind of search given their their lunar lander's capabilities. So maybe things will start to change, and, and it'll... It'll speed up, but uh, to me it's a double frustration because we don't have the answer and we're not using all of our capabilities to find it. Uh, Ian, we talked about an hour. We're coming up on a uh, on the 90-minute show, and including the time we, we lost the telephone connection. Um, have we omitted anything that you wanted to say about your article or about the subject? Have we overlooked something? Do you have more that you want to... Uh, add in, this would be a real good time to do that. Well, I, I feel we've covered a lot. Uh, it's been a very interesting discussion. I mean, I, I, I think I should just uh, become clean and expand a little bit. On, I mean, I've made a point, but I have to reiterate it. Although I personally do think we should be looking for these extraterrestrial artifacts and continuing steady searches and doing everything that, you know, you suggested we should do, and, and I, we have to, we should, we should search because if we don't, we can't, we can't assert there's an absence of evidence until we, you know, look for evidence sufficiently strongly. So I'm very strongly in favour of searching for the evidence, but my, I'm not myself expecting to find any. My, 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 my take on that only paradox is that if technological civilizations were really common in the history of the universe, then they'd have been, they'd have done things in the past that we wouldn't miss. Either we wouldn't be here because our planet had been taken over, or we'd be seeing stars arranged in clearly artificial configurations, or something. We wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting in this great silence where you know we see all the astrophysics going on, but no evidence of minds minds at work. Well, you know, so I think I think they're probably not there. But that doesn't mean I don't think we should look. I think we should look. Well, you know that uh, even if you. Uh, try a project to, to invent it and it doesn't work, you you still have gotten answers. So uh, we may not like the answer, but uh, if, if we were really going all out and searching and prioritizing and the answer was, mm, not there, then then at least we take that off the table for the most part. But we're well, not even well, yeah. at the point of being able to do that. I mean, I think, I, I think you see, we're, we're, we're up against this is a real, something is going on in the universe that we don't understand because planets are common and we would expect life to be common but we don't see any evidence for technological life. It, 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 I do think the Fermi's question is a deep question and I think it's right up there with other things we don't understand like dark energy and dark matter. I mean, these are really fundamental things about the universe that it's clear we don't understand and so we should be doing whatever it takes to... Um, to try and understand. <laughs> so I agree with that completely. What's your next project that you're going to shake our minds about? Uh, what's next on your on your agenda for creativity and uh, and shaking up the the minds of interested people? Well, well, 
Well, I'm still very interested in interstellar space travel. I mean, that, it's because I think interstellar space travel is, you know, physically possible. Uh, that, that I, that I, you know, think that if, that if civilizations have been common in the history of the galaxy, they'd have been here and we'd have noticed. So I'm still interested in exploring, um, ideas for interstellar space travel. I'm still interested in lunar, lunar resources and developing a solar system wide civilization. And I think we can do that, and I think we probably will do that over the coming centuries. But then, but then Archipop's question comes back. If there have been zillions of civilizations building technological civilizations within their own solar systems in the history of the galaxy, they ought to have left a lot of space debris behind, which we ought to see. So, so many, of these, many of these different questions, they all kind of inter, interlink. Um, before we, we go, can I... Ask you a, a personal question if you don't want to answer it. Don't answer it. How old are you? I'm 62. Well, so you you still have some good research years ahead of you, uh, more than I have. So I'm I'm looking for your years of productivity to continuing to shake and rattle the boat and the and the minds <laughs> of other people and to incentivize and inspire others. So I'm glad you're you're not up where I am. I'm I'm glad you still got some years ahead to, uh, to keep rattling the boat, so to speak. And uh, I hope you keep doing it. I, I love these discussions with you, and I look forward to, uh, to more of them when you produce other great papers and uh, you're willing to come on the space show and talk to us about them. Oh, it's, it's always, always a pleasure, David. Yes, it is a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, is there a point in time where your paper becomes uh, available off of Nature or... Oh, yes. Uh, so Nature Astronomy have a six-month embargo behind their paywall. So, so around about June, <laughs> not that long to wait, I shall be uploading uh, freely available versions on various repositories like the Archive okay. Repository and ResearchGate and places like that. It's just I can't do it immediately. Okay, so I'll... I'll put that in the, in the archive. So listeners, those of you that are uh, wanting to read the full paper, and it, it's really uh, jam-packed with information, uh, make a note that you'll be able to search for it with that title in his names in and around June of this year. Ian, yeah, thank or, you. Or, or, or people can just send me an email. You can get, get my email address from the Birkbeck College London you know, site. Or they can get, it, get it from me. I, I have listeners, you can get it from me and... And uh, Ian's okay if I give it to you, so uh, feel free to do do that. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, more visits with you on the space show. And thank you very much for the work that you're doing. Okay, thank thank you, David. Thanks, thank everybody. you. Uh, yep, cheerio. Uh, everybody have a great weekend coming up, and as we like to say, keep looking up. And goodbye from Ian, David, and the space show. And uh, come back on Sunday with Charlie Schaefer of Celestis. Goodbye, everybody.